1: I am so excited to have Scott Sauls back on the podcast. You know what? You know what you need in life? You need some people with whom you can have just soul-nourishing conversations. And Scott is one of those people. He just sees things from a slightly different perspective. He's thought about the depths. He's been to the depths. And uh, we talk about, uh, yeah, we, we go there today. We go there, we talk about what happens when your ambition gets crushed, What happens when things don't work out the way you want? What happens with envy and isolation and leadership? Um, How on earth are we going to get through this current era where everybody just seems to be yelling at each other? Yeah, it's that kind of stuff that we talk about. And you know what? That's why we come back to this subject from time to time, as we did last week with Todd Adkins and Eric Geiger Um, I think these are the things that sink leaders. Like if you don't pay attention to this stuff, this is what kind of takes you out or takes your family out or just honestly just makes you like ineffective. So um, I hope you're going to enjoy it. I really found the conversation rich and uh, I hope you will as well. And speaking of things that can be challenging in leadership, do you ever wonder, I get this question all the time and definitely faced it as a leader. Like what do you do with volunteers who are unmotivated or like volunteers who just don't really seem to do what they need to do to be able to do a good job. Well, I sat down with TrainedUp.Church founder Scott Magdalene and asked him that question, and here's what he had to say.
2: Well, one of the great things about TrainedUp is that it reduces the amount of time you spend in training and doing meetings. So what that does is it increases the amount of time you can spend one-on-one with individual volunteers or building community and, and um, collaboration with between your volunteers. And it's proven over and over and over again, people who feel a part of a community are more engaged in that community. So if somebody's showing up just to serve and go home, they're gonna be the person who is likely to be unmotivated, who is not happy about showing up, who's gonna be showing up late because they weren't excited to be there. But if they're showing up because they're showing up to be with friends and to serve along people that they care about and care about them, then those people are going to be the motivated people. They're going to be showing up early. They're going to be showing up wearing their T-shirt already. (laughs) They're going to be showing up with their name tag on already. Um, And so to me, if you're able to spend more time building community amongst your volunteer team and not just transfer of information, then you're going to be able to reduce the number of unmotivated, you know, um, unexcited volunteers in in your ranks.
1: Well, if you're looking for better solutions to train your church, you gotta check out trainedup.church. You can go to that website right now, and actually, if you act now, they will give you 50% off of the first month of service. So the idea behind Trained Up is basically that you just train your your volunteers digitally. You can even train your staff if you're part of a larger church, and the price works regardless of how big or small you are. So if you you gotta train 10 people, hey, it can work for you. If you gotta train 1,000, it can work for you. It scales regardless of the size of your organization. Now, as a listener of this podcast, make sure to get the 50% off your first month. Just use the coupon code FIRST50, FIRST50, to take advantage of this offer on checkout. And thanks, Scott, for your wisdom and insight as well, and all you're doing to help us reach people. It's great. Hey, and I also want to let you know about a brand new training that I'm hosting this month. It's happening in February, where I'm going to show you how to crush your to-do list. I've been talking about this a lot lately, and uh, man, I just love building into leaders on this. And so how do you crush your to-do list and pursue your God-given vision without sacrificing the health of your church, your family, or even your body? I mean, that's the thing, right? We think More work equals more hours. And what I found in talking to leaders is that one of the biggest obstacles when it comes to being an effective leader is that false formula. I just got to work more to do more. So during this free training, and it's free, I'm going to walk you through the three secrets that high-capacity leaders use to take back their calendars, crush to-do lists, and spend more time with their families. I'm really passionate about this because I didn't do this well in my 30s, and it led me to burnout. That was like 12 years ago. Never want to go back, and frankly, don't want you to get there, and I want you to take the lid off your leadership. Now, the webinar happens February 20th, okay? So it's a specific date. I'd love it if you join me live. I'm actually going to give away 30 minutes of coaching at the end of the webinar. So a lot of you are like, hey, can we get together? Can I pick your brain? Yes. All right. But you got to go to the webinar. So what you need to do is go to thehighimpactleader.com and register. Okay. Seating is limited. I know a lot of people say, oh, there's only a thousand seats. On our provider, there's actually only 1,000 seats. We think they're going to fill up. So make sure you head on over today to thehighimpactleader.com and register before it's too late. And uh, yeah, I want to help you crush your goals. Anyway, let's get into my, I think, life-giving conversation with Scott Sauls. Well, it is so good to have Scott Sauls back on the podcast. Scott, I'm so grateful for you. Welcome back.
3: Hey, thanks, Carrie. Great to be with you again.
1: Yeah, so I got to ask you, because one of my favorite things about you, and whether that's your social or what you write publicly or in your books or just your whole presence is like, it just seems to be, to my mind, and I was saying with you before, I had a chance to meet Ann Voskamp last year, and she feels the same way about you. Just a needed voice in a crazy culture. So my first question is, Scott, what the heck's going on in our culture, man? (laughs) Like, there is something that's changing before our eyes. Like, are things actually getting worse or is this all in my head?
3: Wow. I, I assume you're talking about sort of the belligerent way that the human beings are treating each other uh, in the public conversation. Correct. Man, that is it. I really it. don't know. I mean, I, there's a sense in which it feels like this whole environment of outrage is a new thing. And then there's another sense in which, um, it's, it's a problem that's as old as time. I mean, if we go all the way back to, you know, the 18th chapter of Luke, we've got the the Pharisee and the tax collector parable, right? And, and it says that Jesus is speaking to people who trust in themselves that they are righteous and look down with uh, on other people with contempt. And I, I really think that's a great description of you know, kind of the cable news culture and social media outrage that we're experiencing right now is just way too many of us thinking way too highly of ourselves and way too little of of people who we might be able to learn something from if we were willing to listen to them instead of throwing stones. Uh, it seems like we're all sort of on the hunt, uh, on the lookout to to find something to be offended by. And then, sort of, you know, tribalize with people who think like we do to uh, maybe feel better about ourselves by condemning other people. What you know, whether it's around you know the subject of politics or the subject of you know gender and sexuality or what have you, it just seems like civil conversation uh, is just so rare these days. But I also think there's such a deep hunger um, to move beyond in so many people to move beyond sort of the climate that we're in to something a little more life-giving and 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 civil and I that's where I think Christianity actually has an incredible opportunity if we would if we would listen to Jesus more than we listen to the culture and if we would allow ourselves to be discipled by Jesus you know who said love even your enemies and pray even for those who you know speak poorly of you and insult and persecute you we would allow ourselves again to be discipled by him and by his voice instead of being discipled by the culture's voice, which says, you know, declare your side, declare your enemies and, and and pounce before you get pounced upon. If we would allow ourselves to be discipled by Jesus instead of being discipled by the culture, maybe the culture would begin to think again that Christians have something to say. Mm. you know, that can make a positive difference in the world. So that's sort of how I feel about it. it. It's, it's crazy. And and it's crazy too. Sometimes Carrie, I don't know about you, but I, I'm really tempted sometimes to get into the ring myself and <laughs> I've got to guard my own heart and, you know, resist the urge to click send or, or, you know, or, 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 or to hit retweet, uh, on an angry tweet that somebody else puts out there or whatever. It's hard.
1: Yeah. So I want to ask you about that because, I mean, if you don't follow Scott on social, I'm just going to suggest that all of you should, and you should read his books. We're going to talk about your latest book uh, and some of the ideas in it in a minute. Um, But you become one of my favorite voices because I see you as bringing about a... And it's, it's not even moderate. I mean, you have strong convictions as a Christian but you just have a way of sharing them that I think is sorely lacking in the culture. So let's, let's go through that role play. You read something that, that gets your blood boiling and gets you angry. How, how do you avoid becoming that outraged, angry, all caps person? Like How do you engage civilly with someone that you disagree with?
3: You know who does this really well is Bob Goff.
1: Oh, yeah, um, Bob. Have, have,
3: you, have, you had, have you had Bob
1: on your show recently? Yeah, I've had Bob on my show. In fact, sitting right here on my desk is a letter that Bob sent me um, in the last month. I mean, look does at have, Bob. This, is, this wa- is crazy. Does
3: that have saltwater yeah, salt taffy in there somewhere? Yeah, almost. He gave me
1: balloons yeah. on it and like stickers. And just a note to thank you for the huge impact you're having on so many people's lives. You spread hope. And, uh, joy, like, uh, you're made of them because you are, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, brother. You're a bright light in the world, Bob. And that so is, awesome. that is just a random note yeah. that he yeah. dropped me. And I'm sure other people have gotten them from Bob too. And every once in a while, I'll get a direct message from him going, thanks for doing what you're doing, Carrie. You're amazing. And I'm like, Bob, I just want to be more like you. Yeah. Like, yeah, he does, doesn't he?
3: Well, he does. And I, I um, you know, he's one of our highlights of 2017. And I'm going to shamelessly name drop on this was was to get to know Bob pretty well. Um, yeah. And we just, you know, we've had all these friends in our lives who know him. And we, we've just never had a chance to meet him in person. And we just we just found ourselves, you know, in the same place at the same time with him three or four different times last year and had him in our home and such. And, and part of that um, part of the joy of that is to sort of get to hear kind of the behind the scenes of how he thinks and, and, mm. and, and what leads him to do things in the way that he does. But the way that he engages criticism was so fascinating and so endearing to me uh, and to my wife, Patty as well. He, he basically if somebody, you know, calls him an idiot or says something insulting and does it publicly like on Twitter or something, what he'll do is he'll 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 click on that person's profile and just start reading through their feed and and try to discern, you know, what's going on in their life and and what's going on in their story and you know, it's the best way that you can from a distance get to know a little bit about something somebody and he says that he's, as he scrolls through kind of the angry person's, you know, feed, he'll discover that, wait a minute, you know, that old saying, hurting people hurt people mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a hard hidden battle, um, you know, starts to, you know, well up in, 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 in compassion. And, and a lot of times what he'll do is try to find the person's address and mail them a note like the one you just read. Um, and, 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 you know, just let it's just a very practical way of putting into practice the things that the the scriptures say about how a gentle answer turns away wrath wrath. or, you know, when Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. I mean, he really meant it. And, and, and it actually surprise, surprise, surprise. It actually works a lot of the time, you know, that like it, it, it actually makes things better uh, oftentimes to swallow our pride, to not feel like we have to weigh in on every controversy with our loud opinion, uh, and, and to gently pray for somebody to proactively get to know more about them than just this one little angry statement they, they made, which could have been in a moment of weakness. I mean, they could have lost their mom from cancer the night before, for all we know. Hmm, you goodness. know? But, but I think a great starting point is is just to to remind ourselves and just keep it in front of our faces all the time that everybody's struggling with something, man. Even the mm. Pharisees, I mean, they acted so big because they felt so small.
1: They felt, oh, they felt, that's they, so true. They,
3: uh, and, 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 I mean, it's true. Like, you remember Shrek where... Uh, uh, you, did you see the movie Shrek?
1: I did, yeah. Uh,
3: so you remember when uh, you know Lord Farquaad, uh, you know, you know, acts like such a big shot, and you remember that scene where Shrek and and Donkey are are sitting, you know, are standing Donkey. beneath the huge tower of Farquaad, and 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 Donkey's all impressed at this huge tower, and Shrek just looks over at him and says, "Looks like this man is compensating for something," and, and, <laughs> and uh, I I think that as we remind ourselves that, that, you know, the bravado and the outrage that we see often comes from a a wounded and broken place, it doesn't mean we let ourselves be doormats. It doesn't mean that we continue to throw pearls before swine, or as you like to say, Carrie, don't wrestle with pigs. Uh, (laughs) I don't know where I heard that. That's one of my favorites. Don't wrestle
1: with the pig. You both get dirty and the pig liked it. That's right. (laughs) There's just way too much truth in that.
3: But, um, you know, some good old-fashioned compassion. But, but, you know, in order to, you know, kind of go the route of Bob Goff, we, we've got to be emotionally full ourselves with, with the truths of the gospel and, mm. and you know, make sure that, that our hearts are being more filled and impacted by gospel blessings than, than, and, and, and pronouncements over us than they are by you know, petty criticisms from strangers.
1: Oh, I just need you to talk to all of us for about an hour on that, Scott. That's so rich. and I think I think that's a really good idea. And you know what? I, I'll just true confessions here. I mean, one of the things I like about you is that I think you're one of the good people on the internet and you're trying to create broker civil dialogue even when we disagree. I try to be one of those people on the internet. I don't know whether I am always. But, you know, you get trolls and you get people who attack you and you get people who say unkind things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I will click to their Twitter profile, but I don't go deep enough. I don't bother Mm. to figure out where they live. I might just say, oh, 86 followers. I don't need to take that too seriously. But do you know how Mm -hmm. how stupid Mm -hmm. that thought process is? Do you know how sinful that is? Yeah. What I just did there? That's deeply sinful. Deeply sinful.
3: I've gone there too. Bob, Bob looks for for a reason to love the person, and and I, you know, I go on sometimes for a reason to dismiss for, the person.
1: Yeah, schooled, Just write
3: them off. Yeah, yeah, owned.
1: So, yeah, no, that's good. Tough. And you know, the other fun thing about Bob too, because I've been sitting next to him on the front row when his cell phone goes off. Uh, that number at the back of love does he carries it around with him and answers the phone?
3: Oh yeah, man, he he answered the phone when when we were sitting down with him hanging out, talking about whatever. And it was, it was a girl calling from, you know, like middle America. Um, and she had a question about her friend who's going through a hard time. And he just, <laughs> just, I, he just picked it up and carried on a conversation. Right I remember there the first time, you know, and, and I
1: just say this, because yeah. people are always like, what are people really like? But then Bob's a great example. And Bob, if you're listening, just know we love you, man. And we're not trying to embarrass you or anything like that. But I remember one of the first times I met him, Tony had read Love Does, my wife, and I mentioned to Bob, I'm like, you know, Tony just loved your book and it was so great and she'd love a chance to meet you. And he's like, with as only Bob can, big wide eyes, arms open, goes, well, let's call her. (laughs) So I called my wife and she's like, Carrie, I'm at lunch with my mom and my sister. What are you calling me? You know, I'm at lunch. I'm like, well, somebody wants to talk to you. (laughs) And sure enough, it was Bob. It just made her day. And, you know, she's had a chance to meet him since then. But that's awesome. You know what? We all need to be a little bit more like Bob in that respect. I love that idea. Try to find a reason to love him. And you're right. Most people are hurt. We got a scathing email. About, you know, about this service that we did recently and how terrible it was at our church. And of course, we were to find out that um, <laughs> shortly after that, that guy just had a horrible family thing go down and something yeah. he did. I always thought for years, 90% of the problems in the church have nothing to do with the church. Yeah. They're people's yeah. pain that sort of comes up. So, oh, uh, gosh, I, I got to tell can you, I, that was uh, good. Say Can more. I add
3: one more one more short comment? Yes, sir. Um, you know, a lot of us as leaders, and I know your podcast is is targeted toward a lot of leaders. Um, you know, we we are wired as leaders to sort of take a hill and to kind of you know put the personal element and compassion to the side. Sometimes we feel like the personal loving other people sort of gets in the way. It's inefficient. It's messy. Whatever. Uh, we tend, by virtue of how we're wired, maybe to lack uh, compassion uh, mm-hmm. in some respects. And I would say if that is true of any leader, it's not to say that, that there aren't any leaders who are compassionate, but, but if compassion, especially toward critics and toward messy situations and messy people is a hard thing for you, be sure, for the love of God, and the love of, of, of the human community that you surround yourself with people on your team who do have high levels of compassion. Um, mm-hmm. Because a, a, a leader that, is, that, 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 that is, does not prioritize compassion toward the weak and toward the struggler uh, is going to end up you know, being a bully and might end up you know, being taken down and, and might end up losing, losing his or her ministry if, if they're in ministry. Um, so if, if, if you don't have, if if you aren't strong in the gift of mercy and compassion, make sure you surround yourself with people who are.
1: That's a really good word. You know what? And it is not one of my principal gifting. I think it's a discipline that can be learned. That that Mm -hmm. sounds stupid, but I think Mm -hmm. it is a practice like so many things I'm not good at. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I look at my wife, I look at my kids, they're more compassionate than I am my assistant for the last nine years is super compassionate, and they have standing permission to call me out, yeah, and be like, ah, "You need that's, to soften That's that. key. That's mm-hmm.
3: key as well. Um, where you know it doesn't matter where you are on the org chart, you can speak up the org chart and down the org chart when you're concerned about somebody's character, and that I think that's what's you know saved our our church you know from a lot of grief is that we just have this agreement in our own. Staff and leadership culture that you give zero respect to the org chart when when you feel like somebody is out of line, you have complete permission to challenge uh, the senior pastor, uh, you know, or the accountant, you know. And, yeah, it's and, like a
1: Ray Dalio, one of his principals, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the environment he tries to create as well. That that that's so good, and I think you know, ironically, being around compassionate people has made me more compassionate, or at least aware of what a compassionate person would do. Yeah, so it's awesome. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, let's talk about weakness because that's something I, in the same way, and I agree with you hundred percent that the gift of leadership and mercy don't often go together. Um, that that you, that is something you have to in, intentionally cultivate. Um, weakness and leadership aren't natural companions in the vocabulary of the world, right? That that's something you cover mm. up that you don't really have. But you've done mm. a lot of thinking, and you talk about. Um, Ambition being so, uh, or, or well, well, even even that, you know, that ambition can be the catastrophe to success. Tell us a little bit why you wrote your latest book from weakness to strength, and um, what got you interested in leveraging your weaknesses to actually make you a stronger and better leader.
3: Well, like like a lot of leaders, I was forced. To a place of weakness mm. through through just a season of disappointment, which I can I can elaborate on. that. Yeah, is this the uh, story about a New York? But yeah, I you know, and that's that's the please whole share first, it. Please first share Chapter, it. but uh, if I could sort of preface it with, uh, I love how you put it that the vocabulary of the world doesn't doesn't tend to put leadership and weakness together, and yet the vo- vocabulary of the kingdom absolutely requires uh, mm. uh, leadership and weakness to go together. I mean, even even looking at the way Jesus chose to enter the world and leave it. Um, and and you know that and 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 you think about the apostle Paul who before you know converting to Christianity was essentially had the the equivalent of an Ivy League education. He was, you know, a celebrity rabbi. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, he was. so to speak and he looks back on all of his on building his identity on, on his achievement, which is different than than saying, you know, achievement's bad because achievement is not bad. Building things is, is a good thing. It's a function of the image of God, but building your identity on, on the things you've built and on the celebrity that you've become, which was something that the apostle Paul openly admits in Philippians that he'd done. Uh, he, he uses a word that if, if we gave it a fully honest translation into the English language, it it, it would be a four letter word. Hmm. Um, you know, for excrement, uh, yeah. he felt so strongly in a negative way about building his identity on, you know, his strength and on his bravado and, uh, and achievement and so on. And then he talks about his thorn in the flesh in Second Corinthians twelve, and, and where he talks about how he he has actually learned to glory and delight in weakness, insult, hardship, and persecution and difficulty, because when he's weak. Then he's strong because it's it's in weakness that the the power of Christ shows up and 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 does his work. Uh, just a little bit of an anecdote, uh, and then I'll get to the Redeemer story to whatever degree you want to. But uh, a little bit of an anecdote. Two years into my ministry here at Christ Presbyterian in Nashville, I got up and I gave a sermon, and I decided, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a risk. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a vulnerable part of my story out there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell them uh, my congregation about my, um, struggles with anxiety and depression. I've been through a few seasons. Uh, New York city was one of, you know, included one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been through four or five seasons of, of deep anxiety and depression and, um, and, and just, just, you know, more or less physically and emotionally, um, sacked by those experiences. And I, I shared some about that in a sermon and, and this really accomplished guy in our church, high level businessman, you know, this, this is guy, you'd look at him and you'd think he's got no weaknesses at all. And he comes up to me, you know, with a sort of intense look on his face. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that he's going to start a movement to push me out of the church because I just talked about my weakness. Yeah, and he actually, yeah. It's he like, actually, well, that was a yeah. good two
1: years. Thanks so but much, it, Scott.
3: But the, here's the thing, again, we don't know somebody's story until we hear them tell their story. He, he comes up and he says, you know what? Um, Scott, I, I, I think you're a, a really good communicator. I, I, I uh, you know, way to go for, for, you know, working on your craft there, but I want you to know that I'm, I'm entirely unimpressed by that. I'm, I'm not impressed by gifted communicators. Um, I'll tell you what today is, is the first day that, that I really felt like you got through to me because you, you disclosed your story. You, you, you 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 didn't treat your pulpit as a pedestal. you treated your pulpit. you walk you didn't walk into your pulpit with a swag. you walked into your pulpit with a limp mm-hmm. and and um, in sharing your weakness um, today, you know this is the day that you've become my pastor. and I'd been his pastor for two years, wow. uh, but but, but yeah, you know, essentially what he's saying is all of your gifting, all of your you know your rhetoric, all of your, your interpretation of Scripture, like all these things that, that you, know, you may value as your strengths, they haven't been getting through to me. Um, what got through to me is that you presented yourself not only as my shepherd, but also as a fellow sheep. Uh, and so I can relate and identify with you now. And, and, and so, I, I, but he didn't go first. I mean, Paul talked about his coveting. He talked about his thorn in the flesh. I mean, Jesus begged his friends to stay awake and pray for him. You know, he asked the woman at the well to give him give him some water because he was thirsty. Uh, you know, and, and, and you know, there's, there's this constant theme in Scripture of, of how God shows up in those weaker places. I mean, we're naming our children after, you know, the adolescent, poor, no room at the inn, Mary, and we're naming our children after you know, Peter who, you know, arguably betrayed Jesus worse than Judas did. Um, you know, we're naming our children after them and we're naming our dogs after Herod and, yep. and and Nebuchadnezzar and, 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 um, you know, Caesar, uh, you know, these people who supposedly had the world at their fingertips are now just sort of, you know, supporting actors in the story of Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Zacchaeus and all these, you know, sort of weak, people and the lepers, you know, the leper who came back and said, thanks. And so I think the glory of weakness, um, is a secret weapon that, that, that we leaders ought to maybe consider more often. But, um, the Redeemer story, it really, you know, just to keep it short, you know, I was, I was chosen to be one of the successors to Tim Keller in New York at Redeemer. Mm -hmm. I'd been there for uh, three or four years or so. And, and, um, you know, the, the original plan was to start three congregations with three lead pastors you know that would sort of be the next generation um, you know to, to follow Tim and it ended up being four instead of three we brought in another guy you know who who is now back in you know his his old hometown to planning a church still he's not not a redeemer anymore for for his own reasons but in any event the the, the four it became clear over time because of Financial questions, and because of just some some uh, you know some weaknesses in the philosophy that that was adopted initially of, of trying to have two congregations work out of one building, um, it, it basically just led them to say, you know, we really need to go from four back to three, and what are we going to do? And and essentially what what they did was they asked me as as. Um, kind of the one of the newcomers, and 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 as somebody with church planting experience in his background, you know, their initial ask was, hey, you know, can 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 you be put on hold for a little while, and and we'll start the fourth Redeemer, not not out of this building with this other Redeemer congregation, but we'll want to start it kind of near Times Square and you know Midtown. And I just, you know, I'm in my 40s at the time, you know, early 40s at the time, and I'm just hitting the prime of, you know, years of what they say, you know, your ministry is. And so I was just like, you know, I, I can't do an indefinite waiting period. Um, I, I feel like that would probably not be the best stewardship. And and um, you know, there there are other there are other things around that, but but eventually it just it led us to leave New York and and essentially. Um, you know, resign. They didn't fire me. You know, they wanted to be very clear. You know, this isn't a firing. This is, you know, this is Scott's decision, et cetera, whatever. But, but it was still, it was still, it felt at the time very devastating.
1: Sure. Cause it was a dream for you, right? To yep. be a successor to Tim Keller and lead a church in Manhattan.
3: Well, I, I, here's what it was. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'm talking about weakness and self-disclosure. I mean, the, the whole first chapter of the book uh, is about this story. But um, I used the word devastated a moment ago instead of disappointed. And, and I think that's where the problem was, that I had, I think, by that time, so attached my own identity to this notion of ministering in a, an important city to important people with Ivy League degrees and, and, you know, you know, movers and shakers and world changers, et cetera. I'd, I'd attach a lot of my identity to that. And, you know, just the fact that I would think that one group of people or one city is important. Um, that's that's a statement that says, well, there are other cities that, and places and people mm-hmm. that are less important, which can be furthest from the truth. It's actually the opposite of Jesus's kingdom vision, he, you know, he's always seeming to to avoid celebrities and 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 power brokers and 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 go toward you know the lepers and and the um, you know the overlooked and the sick and and so on and and uh, and so I had backward priorities. I wasn't seeing the kingdom accurately, and and so I think that um, you know in hindsight, for for the good of my own heart and probably ultimately also for the good of the people that God gives me to minister among. Um, you know, I can see God's hand in retrospect in the rear view mirror, but it was, it was really freaking hard yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. to, to go through that. And that was really one of my deepest seasons of depression um, among the ones that I've had. But, but the Lord, you know, the Lord, like it says in the book of Joel, he restores the things that the, locust has eaten and if if we've been listening to him along the way, he's he's actually grown us up a little bit and made us more mature and less worldly. And I, I was thinking in some worldly ways, uh, you know, in retrospect.
1: Well, I think a lot of people can relate and again, you know, that's just evidence of sort of your thinking that um It's really, you know, I always think of it in terms of people admire your strengths, but they resonate with your weaknesses. And when you talk about that, I don't think there's a single person listening who hasn't had some kind of loss in their life, something that they were looking forward to. And it couldn't even be like, you know, I had to leave this place, but it'd be like, well, this church was supposed to be five times the size it is right now, or this campus didn't launch, or, you know, I was supposed to be the senior guy, or my company was supposed to take off, or whatever it is. and. We all end up there, and depression often springs at a loss, like quite frequently. Yeah. That's a pretty big one. how How did you recover?
3: Good counseling. Yeah. Um, uh, my wife and brother uh, have both been there, uh, and that was God's gift to me that they 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 were they mentored me both of them through that season because they had both been to that dark place at, mm. at, at times in their past. Which was great for our children, because you know my kids are like you know they're kind of young at the time, and they're like, "What the heck's going on with dad?" And you know, Patty could, in appropriate ways, uh, explain to them that you know this is a season dad's going through. But but you know the other was just you know people in my life reminding me that of of what's true that that uh, on your worst day uh, and on your least accomplished day, God loves you no less than he does on your very best day or during your very best Mm. seasons of life and your strongest seasons of productivity and fruitfulness. He loves you the same throughout. And, you know, it's just a reconnection. It was a season to really reconnect with those basic, you know, my friend Russ Ramsey calls them the jeans and t-shirt of Christianity. Mm. Uh, they're, They're always there and they never go out of style. The grace of God, you know, the truth of scripture, the promises of his love. Um, you know, the jeans and t-shirt. So it was just a, a gradual rebuilding. And then God really surprised us with this new calling that he gave us in Nashville, which I, I didn't know anything about Nashville. Um, but Tim, Tim said, you know, when we were heading out of New York, he said, you know, I know something, I know a thing or two about Nashville. You know that, right? Cause my, my son went to college there at Vanderbilt. My wife's sister lives there. Uh, we, we, we visit there a lot. Nashville is, you know, has been referred to as the third coast by both the New York times and the Los Angeles times. And Nashville's being sort of co-opted into this, this love affair, um, you know, between LA and New York and, mm. uh, and it's the fifth most international city in, in the United States and just a lot going on. And, and he said, you know, you're, 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 you're going to Nashville from Nashville's future. It essentially, you know, telling me that Nashville is, is gonna become a city not unlike New York because of all the transition that's happening here. And and he was right, we have more New York friends now, Carrie, in Nashville mm. than we do in New York because of the migration. Um, and and you know that was what what felt like a death to me is that, you know, when I look at New York in a healthy way, when I look at ministering in a global city, kind of a coastally minded city, like Nashville is more and more becoming, um, that's also how I'm wired. Um, yeah. You know, take the ambition, take the self-centered ambition stuff and, you know, just let's assume that, that the Lord has helped Scott to become healthier with that stuff. I'm much more wired to speak into the lives of of, of more kind of secular Progressive thinking people, I, I feel like I'm more gifted there in communicating the gospel than, than I am necessarily to a, a Bible Belt crowd. Right. And so, so initially when I thought, oh, we're going to Nashville, that's where the Lord's opened up the opportunity. Felt like the Bible Come Belt, right? We're going to the Bible Belt. This is like the death of of my, you know, <laughs> of of how I'm wired as a pastor, and and it turned out to be the complete opposite. And and being here, it, it's like the Lord opened up all these new doors of opportunity for me that I didn't expect, um, like writing, I wouldn't know you, Carrie, we wouldn't be having this, these conversations because writing books was never on my radar. And I don't think it would have ever happened in, in New York, uh, or from New York. Um, like it's happened here. It just sort of happened, you know, and, and wow. so doors and all these new wonderful friendships that have come through kind of that, that, other part of my ministry of writing my friendship with you, my friendship with Ann Boskamp that you've mentioned, my friendship with Bob Goff, you know, none of that would have ever happened. Uh, and there, your impact in my life would have never happened, um, had God not brought us here. And so, so God has enriched us in ways that we never expected or thought with this sort of surprise move that we didn't want. Um, and, and we get to be part of a beautiful community here of people who just love well and are fiercely and aggressively turned outward toward their city and toward the world and want to make a difference and, and are humble and they live well and they die well. And we're learning so much from them uh, about Jesus and the kingdom. And, and we just we, we feel very, very privileged to, to get to be where we are in ways that we would have never imagined when we were going through that season of loss. And so... The Lord just has a way of rebuilding us, I think, um, in, in different ways. Um, I mean, I could have gone to a small, you know, tiny community somewhere and the Lord would have rebuilt us there too. You know, he, he, mm-hmm. he, knows, he knows what he's doing when he writes our life story. And, and, you know, every part of our life story, he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, and we've discovered that over time by his
1: grace. How did you know you were ready to go back into ministry? If you're Dude, in a period of depression and sadness and burnout, how did you know?
3: I didn't, Carrie. Yeah. I, 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 don't know how to do anything else. You know, <laughs> that's right. and, and, what am I going to do? Like, dig like, ditches?
1: I think that's well, a terrible. I mean,
3: I, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we, we need dig, ditch diggers, but I got a bad back, and and, and so I, I'm not I'm not going d- to dig a good weak. ditch. <laughs> I, I am. I mean, I really, you know, you know. I mean, can you imagine doing anything other than what you do? I mean, you've been doing it for. I have
1: no skills. Yeah, that's, what God that's made it. You do,
3: but you, but you got exceptional skills for what you do, and <laughs> and 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 that's where your heart and your mind share have been for you know twenty twenty five years. It's hard to imagine doing anything else. And so we're just like, what the heck? So did you but kind here, of
1: limp into Nashville, or how did the healing happen?
3: Totally limped into Nashville, and and here here yeah. here's the beauty of it. I, I came into a revitalization scenario. Mm-hmm. Right, the church had had been just through some really rough years for about a decade and they were on life support in some ways and Then this beautiful core of people left. But, but uh, you know, I walked in as a 44 year old guy, a lot of times the youngest guy in the room right. uh, and, 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 and you know, they needed something new, something fresh, something that would integrate, you know, younger generations in, into the life of the church and everything. And, so I just came in basically this church that is, has just been through a lot of turmoil and I did not have any energy to engage any church drama of um, mm. any sort. And, and because I was so sapped uh, and yeah. tired, um, you know, I, I, w- I just wasn't willing to fight fights that I would try to, would have tried to fight 10 years before. I, I wasn't willing to try to appease, you know, large donors, um, you know, in a way that I would have, then, you know, I would invest in the energy to a piece of Right. But but I had a couple of situations where a few power people in the church at different times tried to sort of bully me to submit to whatever they thought I should do as a senior pastor and leading the church. And I just said, look, um, I love you, but no, uh, I I don't have any energy to be anything other than what God's made me to, to be. And and I have to trust that that God called me here because He He worked through the congregation to call me here. And so so the answer is no. Um, and if you need to leave and take your money with you, I, I'm so sorry about that. But if you're going to be a jerk about it, just call me when you need a ride, and and I'll help you find that next place. Because uh, <laughs> I honestly I'm just too too beaten up, you know. Uh, for, And tired and fatigued to to engage church drama, uh, unless it's positive church drama, you know. (laughs) And and what's been born from that is 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 a healthy church that, that 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 has been built around you know largely an unhealthy man, who who didn't engage church drama, not because necessarily he was healthy. But, but because he was tired. Uh, and and, and as, as the church has become so healthy in life, giving through that experience, it's actually motivated me to become more healthy. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, um, I don't know, that's kind of a weird story, but... but.
1: No, but you were also committed to getting healthy too long-term, oh, yeah. which, which I think makes a difference. Hmm. Um, ambition. And you talk about that in the book, and I mean, listen, this is a leadership podcast. I'm going to make the assumption that uh, the vast majority of the listeners are somewhat ambitious. And would you say you say you know ambition leads to the catastrophe of success? Where is that line? How do you how do you know that your ambition is godly? And when does it start to toggle into selfish ambition or destructive ambition or ruthless ambition or just mm. bad ambition?
3: Man, what a great question. First of all, I've got to give credit where credit is due. The phrase, the catastrophe of success is the title of an essay that was written by the playwright Tennessee Williams. Mm. Um, your listeners should Google that. It's it's amazing. Uh, he writes it at the peak of his success. And he's ba- it's basically his version of Ecclesiastes. It's awesome. Wow.
1: Yeah. Tennessee Ecclesiastes, Williams. for anybody who's remotely successful or over 40, Ecclesiastes yeah. is like your best friend. So yeah. good. Yeah.
3: That's, that's our sermon series starting in a couple of weeks. So we'll, <laughs> I'm, I'm trepidatiously looking forward to that. But to your question, I think the warning signs, again, there's no such thing as a new human problem. It traces <laughs> all the way back to Eden. The wrong kind of ambition, unhealthy ambition, you know flows from a desire to be like God. You know we're listening to the serpent's voice, eat the fruit, and, and, and you can be like God. God's trying to rob you of, of your dreams. you know and I think some of the, the big warning signs, uh, one would be, and and we only we can be the judge of this. We we start to enjoy uh, the sound of our own name more than we enjoy the sound of Jesus' name. Mm. Um, that that's 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 one warning sign. Another is that we're more interested in in being a shining star than we are in having character, and we we tend to invest more energy into uh, producing things that will make us look good, uh, and a lot less energy in, in pursuing things that will make us be good. Um, Mm. you know, uh, we, 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 we start to value platform and, and our brand more than we value humility. We, we find ourselves being, um, a different person in different, with different audiences uh, where we have a public persona of, of this sort of altogether, uh, motivated, strong leader, great communicator, but, uh, at home we shut down and, and we are relationally unavailable to the people who are closest to us. That's a, that's a scary sign. I love what, I love the story of, of, of John Calvin. You don't have to be a Calvinist to, to appreciate this, but, John Calvin, who, where theologically, you know, as as a listener, um, you know, he's like he's like the John Wesley of you know of, of the reform tradition, right? He just produced mm-hmm. so much amazing stuff, uh, and and made s- such amazing contributions. E- even with his weaknesses, he made amazing contributions. When when it came time for him to die, he insisted that that he be buried in an unmarked tomb. And so Ooh. to this day, nobody knows where Calvin is because Calvin insisted that there not be an epitaph to Calvin. Um, you know, that the, 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 the memory of Christ continues and that the memory of John Calvin fades. Wow. Um, you know, like, like John the Baptist said, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. Another warning sign, Carrie, that I would want to put out there is, is envy. Um, um, and, and there's a whole chapter. In yeah, the yeah book a whole right chapter on that in your book. It can tear us down, man. When we start to rejoice over the fact that somebody else is mourning, and we start to mourn over the fact that somebody else is rejoicing. Mm. Um, you know, the church down the street's growing faster than ours. Um, you know, what, whatever somebody's books. Uh, you know, you know, sell more
1: than ours. Yeah. Or
3: whatever. You know, when, when we start to you know get caught in that King Saul scenario, you remember the, the people of Israel sang a really flattering lyric about him. <laughs> yeah. Saul has Saul. slain his thousands. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear that, right? And, 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 and he, he, he's you know he's basking in that. Saul has slain his thousands until they sang that David has slain his tens of thousands. And then all of a sudden what was a compliment becomes an insult because Saul doesn't want to be number two. He he becomes aggressive, uh, like a lot of leaders do when they feel insecure and prey. okay.
1: So I got <laughs> I got to take you up on that. All right, because this is so good. I'm like taking notes, and then I realize, no, 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 I'm interviewing. We'll we'll have show notes for all this. So this is good. Man, so much gold. But let's because you're 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 speaking into the heart of a lot of leaders right now, and I think driven people struggle with elements of that or all of that. So let's do some role play here. We're Saul and we're slaying thousands, but you know, the guy down the road or the woman down the road is slaying tens of thousands or we've got our little book but it was self-published and so and so got a book deal or whatever and you're you're wanting play a different scenario out for Saul. Play a different scenario out for Saul. How does the jealous envious Saul get to the point where he goes, "Awesome, David." Way to go. Thank you, God.
3: Yeah, man. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, there there, there are a lot of examples. I mean, you think of Peter, for instance. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Scripture. Peter was with Jesus through thick and thin. And and the Apostle Paul was a Johnny-come-lately, right? Yeah. I mean, how much of the New Testament is made up of Peter's letters? Versus how much of the New Testament is is made up of is a thin letters, slice of right? cake
1: at the end, yeah.
3: And, and yet, and yet, one of the things that that Peter you know is quick to do. And by the way, one of Paul's letters throws Peter under the bus. Yeah, when it does. He talks like, about him it's... in Galatians, right? um not really i mean but 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 yeah. he said you know i had to oppose peter in front of everybody because he was acting out of line peter's he was like possible. well paul
1: can be confusing yeah okay but, anyway
3: but, but 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 peter writes and he says he he does say you know paul's letters can be hard to understand uh, i think he's saying paul's just really really smart um yeah. because of what he follows that up with he says but there but all of paul's words are scripture you know they're like there's this affirmational mm. statement mm that Peter makes of embrace this guy's body of work as the work of God. I mean, how many, how many pastors, how many of us pastors are saying that about the guy down the road? We don't want to mention the name. Uh, we don't want to, to, to allude to the fact that other churches in our cities exist uh, in, in our services, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because for, you know, for fear that that somehow we'll lose our market share or whatever crazy, you know, foolish way we're thinking, and so, uh, you know, for for me, and I, I, you know, I'm a three on the enneagram. I'm driven. I'm ambitious. I'm a builder, etc. I'm wired that way, and so part of what I've seen it as being important to do is just to again, you know, similar to the compassionate leader, surround yourself with compassionate people. If you struggle with compassion, um, it is to uh, make sure that in our services, we're praying by name for other pastors and other churches down the road and saying positive things about other pastors and other churches locally in my sermons. Um, like I, 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 I make a point of doing that on a regular basis because I know my own heart, and I know how mm-hmm. my heart heart can 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 go to that competitive, you know comparison place that Saul's heart. So easily went to, um, and and uh, you know, and just just to find figure out ways to even if it feels unnatural to publicly celebrate what God is doing through other people, um, you know. And, and here's a here's sort of a grounding reality, you know, to to John Calvin's unmarked tomb story. Um, and I think we may have even talked about this quote on your show before, Carrie, mm-hmm. where Anne Lamott. You know, was asked the question, "What's the world going to be like in a hundred years?" You remember what her answer was?
1: I don't, but remind us.
3: All new people. Uh, <laughs> you know, so we are we are so temporary. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the impact that we're going to have. Uh, if the if if the world is still here and our church is still here in 150 years, nobody at our church is going to know who the heck I was, Mm-mm. and and my, and your
1: great grandchildren won't know. Like name <laughs> your great 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 grandfather. Exactly. Everyone's blank. Uh,
3: exactly, and and you know, but there's probably somebody in the crowd who's a family tree person who's right. going to say, I can name mine. But it, but you're right. I mean, it's like Ecclesiastes talks, Ecclesiastes, the whole book is about how life is a vapor. And, you know, you've got Solomon, you know, who, who's, you know, he just filled his life with accomplishment and pleasure and wisdom and, and, and enjoyment and everything. And, and his conclusion is life is a vapor so anchor your heart in God and enjoy your life, you know, mm. uh, and, and, and keep his commandments. And, and that's the sum of the matter. And I think if that could be the sum of the matter for us, our ambitions could become really beautiful, best kinds of dangerous, blow a hole in the gates of hell kind of ambition.
1: Just to underline what you were saying, I think Andy Stanley wrote about this in Enemies of the Heart, where he said, and this has just stuck with me over the years, because it's something we all struggle with, but like leverage what God has given you, celebrate what God has given others. And that's that's just like I imagine Paula or Saul at that moment being able to say, All right, I got a thousand. And yeah. David got ten. Great. What do I do with my thousand?
3: Okay, and so here's what some of your listeners are saying to themselves right now. Easy for Andy freaking Stanley to say <laughs> with his 25,000-person 20, church and massive platform. But here's the deal with that. Andy Stanley has Joel Osteen to contend with, whose church is twice the size of Andy Stanley's yep. church. And Joel Osteen has the president of some country to to contend with. And the president of that country has the president of another country to contend with. Like there's always what we forget is that, 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 human problem of jealousy and competition and comparison exists for everybody.
1: Do you remember, um, and I think you have to be certain age to remember this. I wonder if you would remember this, but when Ted Turner, the, you know, TBN magnate donated a billion dollars to the UN, do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Made news. Made world news. Anyway, back in the day when there was world news. And I remember seeing an interview and he was asked, like, wow, you must feel you've really arrived after Mm -hmm. being able to donate a billion dollars to the UN. And his response was, you should see how much Bill Gates gets to give away. Wow.
2: You know, wow. and it's like, you're right. Yeah. I mean, most yeah. of us,
1: we don't even have a yeah. category for a billion, you know, yeah. let alone a million or whatever. Right. And, and he's like, yeah, well, compared to Bill Gates, I'm a bag of dirt. And Man. that that is just, to me, I read that 20 years ago and I'm like, That's
3: yeah. That's awesome. That yeah. is awesome. I, I, I wasn't aware of that, Bill Gates. I I've, I've
1: tried to deep Google that. Hey, listeners, if you get it and you find a quote to that, um, I read it years ago. Send it to me at kerry carrie at carrienewhoff.com. That would be great. I'd love to find that and actually accredit that. So, um, no, but you're, you're so here, here's, here's another aspect of this. And this is for any Christian who serves in ministry, whether it's full time on staff or not. But, you know, so many church leaders or even volunteers in ministry know too well, personally, the experience of losing Jesus in the process of serving him that we started with the best of intentions, we loved him, this ministry is going to be amazing, whether you're volunteer, bivocational, paid, full-time, mega megachurch, microchurch, whatever you lead, you know, whether you're serving on guest services or whether you're in charge of it all. How does that happen to good-meaning people?
3: Man, I'll tell you, that's why I wrote From Weakness to Strength. Mm. It, it, it was more of an effort to protect myself from... <laughs> What five of my fr- what happened to five of my friends in, in, in a matter of eighteen months? Oh man, five of my friends, and if I if I gave their names, your, your list, most of your listeners would probably recognize at least three of the five, lost their ministries mm. um, because uh, you know as uh, as part of the process of becoming well known, you know, with book deals and big churches and a lot of fans and followers, but, but no friends, Mm. um, you know, which speaks to isolation, you know, the isolation problem, uh, lost their ministries because they either were unfaithful to their spouses or they started bullying their staff, you know, or some other character collapse happened. Mm. Um, but I think Carrie that, um, you know, to your question, Uh, and again, there's a whole chapter on this in the book, is isolation. I think isolation is the biggest culprit to the loss of character among those who start off really well and with great motives and desire to serve the Lord, you know, who, who start off, you know, like John the Baptist, Jesus must increase and I must become less, and then who eventually that reverses, Jesus must decrease and I must become, you know, I must increase isolation is the common thread, uh, in my observation, in every single situation um, that could be described that way.
1: I want to talk about that, Scott, because almost every leader can relate to this. And I talk to people who are now sitting in the senior leader seat who didn't sit in it for years. You know, they were in their 20s. They were associate this or, you know, director of X. And all of a sudden, they're the lead pastor. And by the way, for a lot of listeners of this podcast, that switch is going to flip in the next... Five years as you become the senior leader of something. Almost everybody says this. You must have felt this when you moved to Christchurch out of a, a second chair role in New York, where there is something lonely about that senior seat. There's something that that just takes you into a different place. So how do you navigate that? Um, there's something inherent about being the senior leader that gets you a little bit isolated. But how do you avoid becoming that person who, as you say, has a lot of fans and followers and no friends?
3: You got to work for it. Mm. I mean, you've you've really got to work for it because there's this power dynamic that happens, um, you know, where, where your congregants, you know, or your you know the, the people who report to you. Uh, you know if you're not a church leader, if you're some other kind of organizational leader, um, as the person at the top of the org chart, for lack of a better term, um, there's there's just an Im- implicit power dynamic where where people will think of you. They just think of you differently, um, and and you've got a you and, and in a sense you do have to rem- you you do have to maintain a level of of professional distance in the same way that moms and dads need to maintain a certain distance from their kids of, you know, the marriage is a higher entity than, than the parenting and the parenting only works when the marriage is strong. Right. Yes, Uh, And and in the same way, you know, there's certain things about marriage that the, that the kids are just, you are not going to tell them about, Uh, you know, and, and, and that creates a distance when the kid's, well, the parents aren't communicating everything to the kids because it's so unique to be parents rather than being kids. I'm going somewhere with this. So, so if you're in an organization or leading a church, it's the same, but there are just certain burdens, there are certain things that you that are on your plate that are, aren't on any anybody else's plate. And so from you, that, that can potentially create a loneliness and alienation effect. And from the people that you're serving, uh, mainly because they think – they know you better than you know them. And and they get frustrated. They get frustrated because they don't get as much of you as they would like to personally. And if you're leading a, a large church like you do, Carrie, um, you know, it's even harder to, to sort of bridge that gap and 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 be a pastor, or be the pastor to everybody. I
1: had that conversation today with someone, and like, I'm not going to do a pastoral visit. I had that awkward phone call today, and it went really well. But yeah, you're always in that position,
3: but it's 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 really hard. And 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 so in the midst of that, uh, I'll maybe feel like it'll it'll maybe feel like I'm contradicting myself. Um, It's important to find those people who are going to be. Your close friends, and maybe the maybe you're one of those lucky pastors who can find those people in your church. And and for me, that has happened. Uh, and and there's a group of eight of us. And the the two things we have in com- three things we have in common: Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, we're all leading an organization, uh, and uh, we all want to grow as followers of Christ. Mm. And it's there's something about being intentional about friendship with other people who are leading things. And that's why some of my best friends over the years of of pastoring churches have always been pastors of other churches. Yeah, me too. Um, You know, there's this commonality that you can share with one another. Um, If you can remove the competition element and and get to a place where you're really cheering each other on, some of our best friendships can actually be other, other pastors and leaders in our cities. I would say that, that it's just incredibly important to have those people in our lives, whether it's in your church or from outside of your church, that really know you, uh, mm-hmm. that know the stuff you're going through, that can call your bluff. I also think it's important, like we talked about a few minutes ago, to have at least a handful of people on your staff who have an open invitation to challenge you, um, yeah. especially on character
1: issues, mm-hmm.
3: um, and to sort, and to not be afraid to say hard things to you. And that's on us to set the environment. And the yeah. Tone. I mean, do
1: you find yourself, like I said it even today to my team, you guys have permission to push back. Like you, mm-hmm. if you don't agree, I need to know if you think I'm making yeah. a mistake or being an idiot, like you, you, you have permission to speak that. But it takes a few laps for people to believe that. It takes some yeah. time and experience because, you know, they come to you and say, well, actually, you know, Scott or Carrie, that moment when you said this and you're like, well, I didn't mean that at all. Pff, that's it. End of dialogue. You've just yeah. killed it. Yeah. You've got to create safe space with zero yeah. repercussions, negative repercussions for them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Defensiveness is a killer of that, um, that, that freedom that people feel to speak honestly Defensiveness and, and, you know, aggressive behavior or aggressive ways of speaking, Um, you know, shaming, things like that, Uh, you know, and and to develop the habit of building people up, you know, to catch for every time we catch somebody in our on our staff, you know, making a mistake, catch them 10 times doing something right, Um, you know, because that that builds that builds a trust and, and creates a growing freedom to to speak more honestly and openly and freely.
1: So there, there are some leaders listening who are like, I love the theory. I agree. I'm sold. Mm -hmm. I don't have that friend. I, Mm -hmm. I just don't, I wish I had eight in my congregation. I can't think of eight. Um, I'll I'll just share here. There've been seasons in my life where you almost have to go back to second grade in the playground. Mm -hmm. And I've said this to pastors, you know, when I'm, you know, in well into my adult years where it's like, would you be my friend? You know, like, like, can we have a mutually life-giving relationship? And some of those have blossomed into years-long friendships. Now, sometimes it happens naturally, but I'll realize, okay, I'm in a season where, you know, and I think you have some friends that you keep for life, and we've got friends that we've known for decades, and actually some for since since I was a kid, 20s. Um, but the majority, you know, you kind of cycle through them a little bit like your wardrobe where somebody was there for a season and they were really mm. close and really meaningful, but you're yeah. not as close as you were. And then somebody else kind of cycles on. Um, yeah. But when you're in a season, is it all right just to say to somebody, you know, I need someone to track with and be 100% open with. Yeah. Do you want to have, you know, you you don't just call people randomly for that. But after you've had one or two meetings with them, and can you just go there and ask them?
3: We I mean, we've done that before. Yeah. Um, Me you too. Know, I, I, ideally, friendship happens to us, yeah. right, rather than yeah. us making it happen. Ideally, you know, even C.S. Lewis said, that, you know, the way that friendships are formed is when one person looks at another and says, oh, you too? Um, right. but, but, you know, but and, and, and so those are the ones that happen more naturally and organically is when they just happen to us. But But I think that there is something to be said, you know, to your point of intentionality of, of, of perceiving that, Hey, I, you know, I think, or we think that this person or these people could actually become good friends. And so let's give it a run, you know, let, let's, let and maybe to put less pressure on the friendship, right if, on. If, you know, is to just say, Hey, you know, what do you guys think about, you know, having dinner once every two weeks for six months? We just like to spend six months or I would just like to spend six months getting to know you can we just commit to having lunch or having dinner once every two weeks for six months? And then if it, if, if it doesn't click, then, you know, no pressure, you let no, it hurt, go. no Yeah. Say, yeah, thanks for, this has been great. Um, I feel like I've made a new friend out of this and you move on. Or if it, if it really clicks, you you can continue and, and grow it. Um, no, I think
1: that's a good word. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. That's how most friendships evolve in most of ours, but there's been one or two seasons of my life where, you know, you're getting to know somebody and you kind of just ask and it turns out to be incredibly life-giving. And I've just talked, like you talked about your five friends who lost their ministry in a short window. I've talked to way too many leaders who are like, I got nobody. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just, that's common talk. Wow. Um, Okay, man, there's so many places we can go. Can we finish? Because I know we've touched on this briefly in a previous conversation we had in an earlier episode, but criticism. And uh-huh. I remember I asked you about working with Tim Keller, and you told me how he handled criticism. And I've been trying to live up to that standard ever since and failing badly. Um, but <laughs> how, how do you handle criticism? I mean, we all kind of hate it. So what is, uh, and, and I think you opened that chapter by saying, I hate being criticized. Well, you and the rest of the human race, I mean, welcome yeah. welcome to life. So yeah. how do you deal with that? Because that comes with the territory of leadership. And if you're not being criticized, you're not doing anything significant.
3: Yeah. So it, it, I, I got to be honest, Carrie, I, It For me, it depends on the critic, you know? Um, <laughs> Consider I the mean, source. Yeah. There, are some, yeah, there are some who just seem committed to, to find fault. And, you know, there's a certain point, if you've got a persistent, ongoing kind of fault-finding situation, you know, there's a certain point where you just got to say to the person, hey, you know, I think I've heard you. Let's just just call a truce and say enough is enough. And and then, you know, there are other situations where, um, you know, either the the criticism is completely fair and, and it's something that we can can really learn from and would benefit from learning from or it's partially fair. Uh, and you know, and this goes to the Tim Keller part, you know, mm-hmm. cause he gets, he gets unfairly criticized a lot, you know, yeah. from people who just don't really know him. That, that just goes with a big platform. You know, you want to be famous, you, you better count the costs because you're going to get criticized if you're doing anything that matters. a lot. and, and, and uh, he gets, he gets criticized, but I think part of, you know, part of, what works well for Tim is that he never wanted to be famous. You know, Mm. Tim Keller never wanted to become Tim Keller. And, and, you know, if he had it, if he had his way, he probably, you know, you know, his, his fame and celebrity is probably the least important thing in his life to him, Mm. which which probably is what makes him, you know, more (laughs) famous. Well, yeah, but, but also makes him more free to objectively receive, even an unfair criticism, and, and the way he puts it is, uh, you know, see if you can find a kernel of truth in a dozen false things that, that are said. See if you can find a kernel of truth in there that you can repent of, because every opportunity for repentance is an opportunity to draw, draw closer to Jesus. And he really does live that way, and he's a very, he's one of the most non-retaliatory people I've ever met in my life. He does not strike back. He does not um, respond in defensiveness. Um, he carefully considers, and uh, after carefully considering, he humbly discards the things that he just doesn't believe are true, and he humbly prays over and repents of and admits the things that he believes are. And and um, you know, but I'll tell you what, though that kind of spiritual muscle and th- this is, I think, probably the most important thing that, that maybe I could say in this whole interview. That kind of spiritual muscle doesn't, you don't get zapped with it. Uh, it doesn't happen with a New Year's resolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that dude, he's he has he's been reading through the entire Bible every year for, for over 50 years, praying through the, the Psalms every month, all, the whole book of the Psalms every month, for over 50 years. He reads 80 books a year uh, You know, to, to feed his soul. Like the guy has got a very, very deep personal, spiritual formation approach. And, um, and we're never gonna become that kind of person uh, mm. without a well-formed, thoughtfully, carefully formed, heart and way of thinking about God and ourselves and, 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 the world. And so, I mean, that's the secret sauce. If you want to be, yeah, those are the deep waters. Like, yeah. You, you got to have a, a fiercely loyal, faithful, private life. Uh, if, if you're going to become, you know, a credible public servant as
1: he has. So that's so good. And, you know, I just want to, um, Underscore something you said as well when you were paraphrasing how or summarizing how Tim Keller handles his critics. But you're like, is there even a kernel of truth? And I thought you were going to say that you can agree with, but you didn't. You said Mm. that you can repent of. There is a world of difference between saying that person was right or you saying I was wrong. Mm. And that gets us right back to where we started this conversation with what the heck is going on, and what's missing in a lot of the angry words and the finding like minded worldviews is repentance mm. what's you know my my obsession with finding out what's wrong with you will keep me from discovering what's wrong with me
3: wow, that's so profound and so true wow, it's, profound. it's more it's more than just conceding the person's point,
1: yeah. It's more it's, like, you know what, Scott, you're right. It's saying, I'm wrong, but I'm wrong before God, and I'm wrong before you, and I may have wronged you. That's a whole other level.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if if we look back on our last year of leadership and can count on less than five fingers the number of times we've apologized, we might want to consider a long sabbatical. <laughs>
1: We often put like uh, things you can tweet in in the show notes, and like I think these will be seven hundred pages of show notes. Thank you to Holly Beth who listens to these.
3: The good news for you is they've doubled their character count, so a lot more things that are said on your show can be tweeted. I'm enjoying that. I got to tell you,
1: I'm enjoying that. No, this is this is good stuff, and this is the soul stuff, and. And this is why I'm so grateful for your voice is because I see you as one of those people who's doing the deep work. And, you know, you're not going to get this jumping from social platform to social platform. This is prayer. This is you're reading deeply. Uh, you're focused. You're self-aware. You're interacting with people. And I just hope that those become the habits of, of uh, so many of the leaders that are part of this community um, because I think that's what keeps you in the game in your 40s and your 50s and your 60s and beyond and, and, and you know, allows the light of Christ to, to shine through you. Um, the book is called From Weakness to Strength, right? And it's all about the eight vulnerabilities that can bring out the best in your leadership. We didn't get to all of it, but it's ambition, isolation, criticism, envy, insecurity, anti-climax, opposition, and suffering— and uh, most leaders can say, yeah, I've got elements of all of that in my story. But the powerful thing is, if you know what to do with it, it doesn't sink you, um, that, that this is actually can become the best parts of your leadership, whatever you lead in a church or in the marketplace. So uh, Scott, where can people find you online?
3: Uh, I've got a website uh, called scottsauls.com and uh, a blog there. You can get sermon material and other things, book information, etc. And then our church website is Christ Pres, uh, the name Christ, and then uh, P R E S dot org, if anybody's interested in, in that or lives in Nashville and doesn't already have a church. Um, so. Yeah, thanks so much, Kerry.
1: Oh, it's always great to talk to you, Scott. Thank you so much. I know you've helped a lot of leaders today and just, yeah. man, I feel better. I don't know. I just feel better. Thank you.
3: Well, time flies with you, my friend. So <laughs> thank you. Thanks sure so much. Does.
1: Well, that was Rich. And man, I'll tell you, there is more in the show notes. So if you want a link to anything we talked about or you just want to you know, bookmark it so you can listen again, Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 178, or if you can't spell that, uh, leadlikeneverbefore.com, and you can just search Scott Sauls. He's been on the podcast before, so all his episodes will pop up and you'll find the show notes there. We are back next week with a fresh drop, and I am going to have a great hyper-practical conversation with the one and only Rich Birch. Here's an excerpt.
0: There's five things I'm seeing and and some of them are probably things that you would you would expect you know compelling communication you know the the thing across kind of theological convictions and across you know various Kind of tribes or various approaches is you know the churches are very good at communicating. They've you know they've they've done a good job actually at communicating um, the word of God. Actually, one of the things that we see time and time again is churches that are growing. Um, the 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 teaching portion that happens on Sundays is is central to what they do. Part of what I like about what you do, carry in the way you kind of you know, talk about even that in your, in your blog about trying to help people get better at that. You know, you see people leveraging big days. That's pretty common. Mm. You know, you, you know, we, we've we got one coming up here in Easter and and churches that are growing, they don't just roll over those days. They're, they're thinking how they don't necessarily need to have like the, you know, the mechanical Jesus that goes up into the sky, you know, or some <laughs> crazy thing or like a big Easter pageant or something like that. But they don't let those days just roll over. They've, they That is a strategically important day for them. And they spend time, effort, and energy resources uh, to make that happen. But, you know, there's also a number of things I saw that actually I find more subtle and more surprising.
1: I just love Rich's idea of a church growth flywheel. Like, could you imagine just you work on these five things and things get better? Well, we're going to talk about that in detail next week. If you subscribe, you get it absolutely free. Um, You can do that wherever you listen, on Android, on iPhone, and uh, some of you are not subscribers. So why don't you head on over, just hit the subscribe button and that way, you never miss a thing because coming up, man, I'll tell you, recently I did an, an interview with former Popeye CEO Cheryl Batchelder. When it was over, I said to Cheryl, I feel like I just got an MBA. Uh, William Vanderblumen is coming up, Brad Lominick. Uh, we got Brian Houston uh, that we're going to have on the podcast. We've got Jessica Beeler, Gina McLean, uh, Nick Vukovic is coming on, and so many more. So you don't miss any of it if you subscribe. Make sure you get the bonus this month over at trainedup.church of 50% off training your entire team. Use the code FIRST50 and sign up for the webinar February 20th at thehighimpactleader.com. And uh, yeah, you can get in while the getting's good. Thanks so much for listening. We're back next week with a fresh episode. I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before.
0: You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast.